Okay. Where where do you think you are? <laughs> Just curious about the book. Well, I didn't. Well, I've been gone, you know, two months or something, and then you're on the same spot where I left you. So I was just curious about what might might have happened while I was gone. So that's where you are. Okay. Well, that's what I. That's where I start. Okay. So, uh, well, here we go. Anything you want to talk about? You got. If you got rid of the Gnostics and the moralists, um, then that would be your halfway to being halfway to being a Christian by the time you get rid of those two things. Um, so that, that was probably that was probably good. Um, what do you like? Any place got anybody got a place you want to start? Massive places I could start, but uh, no. Yes. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes, you know, uh, there's a long tradition of church in the church. Um, there's a long tradition of this that, 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 that uh, is spoken of as the negative way or um, the absence of God. Or as spiritual darkness. So there are famous people, St. John of the Cross, for example, who engaged this a lot. Now you may have, um, and God bless you if this hasn't happened to you, you know, you may not have encountered this in, uh, in your own life. But, um, and if you make it all the way through your life and you don't encounter it, you know, God bless you. But it, it's, a, it's a very normal uh, and common um, part of life, and it's actually very helpful that he that he grounds it in history. You know, um, Luther's famous thing about what makes a Christian: tentatio, oratio, and meditatio. So, oratio, praying; meditatio, scripture. The tentatio, this angst, this darkness that comes to people, um, this suffering. And the ultimate suffering often is the absence of God. So what happens on the cross, I don't know if you sort of have thought this through, but um, you know, when everything goes dark uh, physically in the world, you remember it gets dark in the middle of the day, um, there is a parallel darkness in the Lord's soul, in Jesus' soul. Uh, to, be, to, be, to be condemned is to be, if God is light, then the opposite, then then the absence of God is darkness, and so at the crucifixion, everything goes dark, and Jesus Himself goes dark, and He dies in that darkness. Uh, very, you know, great sadness, um, but not without commending Himself to God. So He comes through on the other side. So it's very common. Um, not everybody suffers this, um, but partly, you know, one of the things about this is you always have to see yourself in community. Um, you may not have suffered such a darkness, but people around you regularly suffered. It's like normal suffering. You may not have suffered normally, but um, and, and some people kind of get through life, you know, pretty free. But the reality is, people around you are suffering all the time. If you just, you know, we sort of in 60 seconds we can name. I mean, look at the stuff we named this morning: the stress of um, great responsibility, the death of people with young child, or the impending death of people with young child. Um, less than death, you know, the carrying on of suffering over an extended period of time, you know, it's a great difficulty. Those are their own kinds of darkness. Uh, and and when that, even if it's not in your own life, in fact, um, you know, part of your responsibility is the, in community. If, if suffering doesn't come to you, you help those who suffer. If darkness doesn't come to you, you help those in darkness. Uh, because both with suffering and darkness, despair... Uh, is often the next step, and that that then is very difficult to draw people out of. And so, you know, your your responsibility in the community is always to pull people back from that, or if you can't pull them back, to stand in the darkness with them. I mean, this very basic thing about what people fear most is being alone and unloved. And if you stand with people in their darkness or in their suffering, they're certain then that they're not alone and unloved. Um, I must say that for an extended period of time, you know, for example, and that this was a pretty rig- 430 years is a long time to be in darkness. 
I mean, think how many generations that is. That would be as if God had been silent ever since your great-great-grandfather. I mean, what would that be like? Yes, please. That, that has to be right. The resistance has to be right. I was trying to parse that out now. I had, um, he purposely left them in darkness. I'm trying to just, I'm just kind of trying to figure that out. I was running through my head kind of the pre-Exodus stuff. Because I don't, I don't know if I want to, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. I just want to, this is very, very perceptive, but I, because it is, it is how we experience it. But do you think, let's just, let's still, now we've got to see if we can push this a little bit. Do you think that, um, is God being quiet the same thing as God neglecting us? Or is God being quiet the same thing as being in darkness? So there's two sides of this story, right? Well, I was even okay. Good. Well, yeah. Let's push back to Exodus. That's the harder case. Okay. So, but it, I think it's the same today, because I think I, I think as I think about I think about my own life as I read this. You know, there are times when things are very clearly good, and times when they're very clearly silent and dark. Okay, and you can probably say the same thing too. But but I, I want to push the that questioner that reformulated if I don't have it the right way. Um. It is, in fact, true that there were extraordinarily difficult circumstances for Israel for centuries. Okay? That's just the historical record. But how, how you, how, how, is how we, is God's intent the same as our experience of that? That is, is it, in fact, true that God is God's silence the same thing as God imposing darkness? You set the question the first time. Now, I've talked so long, I can't remember how you said it the first time, but you said, does he purposefully, you said, does he purposefully, yeah, right. See, the thing is, is and I, I want to, I, I guess I want to ask, is silence the same thing as darkness? And is suffering, the, is, okay, good, I don't think so either. Is suffering the same thing as darkness? Not always. It can be. It can, or it can bring on great darkness, right? It can bring a... Die well. Yes, right. Right. And some people are completely broken by it. Right. Good. So, so my, question is, my question is how we set that question. I don't know if I'm completely comfortable with the question, although it resonates because it is your experience. If you have the sense that God has not spoken to you for 400 years, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, right? Could you say that your experience is darkness in the, in, in, like, like in this moment of disaster? <coughs> is that your own doing? Sometimes it is. But it seems to me like when you're having a dark, like I went through a little bit of a dark period a few years ago where it was difficult for me to be in church. In church. Right. That's right. Gathered me with them all. You know what I mean? Kind of bring me back into things. But was that my own doing? Well, unfortunately, you know, um, it's often not that easy to figure out. Or it's a combination of so it's like when you go to the doctor and you're sick and you would like one one answer and they say, Well, actually you have this and you have this and that interacts with this and you're also doing that and so we now we have to figure out a way to fix all four of those things. So one, it can't always be so, please. Yeah, that's all right. It doesn't matter. Either one of you. Yeah.
Um, that's ex- good. That's the same way to set. That's a way to set this question in a different way. Okay, so there's there's a couple of possible answers for that. And I was trying to. That's probably maybe a better way of what I was trying to say, which is there is how you feel about him, which is sometimes you may feel that he's absent when in fact he's there. Yes, but people's experience is sometimes so thick. It's so thick, you know, that, that, that they don't... It's a little like telling somebody that you love them and they don't feel your love at all. You know, you do in fact objectively love them and it makes no difference whatsoever to them. So God is in fact objectively present and they have no sense of it at all. And that, that, well, see, the thing is, is I don't know. Yes, sometimes it is their fault, but sometimes it's not their fault. Sometimes it's the chemicals in their brain go haywire. Sometimes it is evil that they've done. Sometimes it's evil that's been visited upon them. But people, people who have been, for example, horribly physically abused, you know, or sometimes, you know, what's really interesting is if you've ever known anybody who had their house broken into, People have this very difficult reaction, even if they're not there, because they have a sense that their space is violated and they're no longer safe, especially if their house has been trashed, not just that if stuff is stolen, you know? You have this sense that somebody was where they don't belong and I've been violated. Now, that that sort of thing can put you, or people have been physically abused. You know, they have a sense, you know, they've done nothing at all, and yet they're often shamed by that. Uh, They often feel unsafe. They feel dark even though nothing else in their world has really changed, right? Or even if they haven't done anything to deserve it, as we talk about people deserving things. So it's very difficult to kind of sort these things out. But uh, So now I want to sort of push you. So here's the thing. So that's a non-answer to your question, okay? It's a, it's a non-answer. But it just means that there are a lot of variables. There are a lot of possible. So what are the variables? It is possible that you slash Israel did something. It is possible that you slash Israel had something done to him. Read the Psalms. Just about every other psalm is saying, if you're reading God, why do you let people from the north sweep over us? Why do you let Egyptians from the south take advantage of us? If you're reading God, why do you let evil men prosper? Why do you let the rich oppress the poor? Where in the hell are you? I mean, that's all over the psalms. You can't read the psalms without getting to that. Yeah, that's your objective, or that's your subjective sense of what's going on. Um, so it could be you're evil. It could be that other people are evil. Um, you know, it could be that the that the world is evil. You know, or it could be any any sort of mix of those things. Okay. Now, do you want to keep? I'm I'm a I'm a fi- Go ahead. Yes. <clears throat> Right. <coughs> right. Yes, thank you. Now you and it's interesting how how um all right, so uh let's just go with let's just go Oh, that's good. Okay, good. Could you could you please give more to church because we're short right now, apparently. Um, you know what? I was in a conversation the other night where people were actually, reasonable people were defending pocket protectors. I was, I was like, wow, this is a very strange conversation. And it's kind of a new, hip thing to do. What's that? I wanted to try to do it without any sort of... All right, so, so evil... No, no, not very well. Sometimes if you stand them on their head, you get the, you know, the last bit. So, okay, so you get evil, um, darkness. Uh, I'm just going to just, just sort of put this up here. You're alone, you're in love. This is your experience of what's going on. Absence, which I can never spell. S-E-N-C-E, is that right? Is that right? Absence. It's always more difficult when you have. Now, Judy, sorry, you sort of hop to the other side, which is great. So um, among the things you said... What was it there was in this learning? What else did you say? Did you say one other thing? Yeah, okay, good. Right. 
Okay, now, now part of the question is, is um, or anything else? The part of the question is there's a big gap in the middle. Um, Yeah, actually, despair is actually goes here. Yeah, I mean, if people who are in when you say to say when you say when you if you if people who are in despair could buck up, they would buck up. I mean, it's like going to the hospital and saying get better to people. They would get better if they could, right? I mean, it's not when you say to somebody sort of get tough. That's very limited advice. You know, that's, you know that, that works, you know, one in a thousand times. It's maybe with you're teaching your kids to be a little stronger or to think a little different. But when people are really in despair, if they are really feel oppressed, they don't want to be there. If they could get better, they would. Yes, please. Right, and now, now here's the thing. I mean, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, well, well, one of the most frustrating things in the church, really, honestly, is people who, you meet them, you know, when you're 20 and they're in despair, and they die when you're 60 and they're still in despair. And you feel, especially from the point of view of a pastor, as if um, nothing ever helped them. And now, see, even that needs to be sort of critiqued, okay? So let's use um, Mother Teresa as an example. Okay, you've, you've probably, have you read this stuff about Mother Teresa lately? You know, you remember that she had this great glimpse of, of the divine, and off she goes to India, and within, literally within weeks of going there, I think it was 54, but I got a kind of, kind of guy. Maybe I got my dates screwed up a little bit. But anyway, within weeks of going there, she went into darkness. And she was in darkness her entire life, except she said she had a period of about eight weeks at one time during her life where life was bright again. And then every, all this was darkness, and she died in darkness. You know, her papers have been released. They're being published now, and, you know. And then there was all this sort of talk about, well, she wasn't a very good Christian then, was she? Right? Do you remember this? Yeah, you remember? And then there was a very wise voice, you know, a guy who must have been the Vatican appointee to sort of defend her, who said, people who say such a thing don't really understand what it is to be a Christian. Okay? So now we've got to sort of put all this together. My reaction, your reaction, our own suffering, Linda's question, Carol's reformulation of it. So then there's a question about what it means to be a Christian, <laughs> what it means to be the people of Israel. We actually even have to ask questions about how long a period, 430 30 years is, when there is, you know, the verse that says something like, you know, you know, a day in the life of the Lord is 10,000 years and 10,000 years like a day, okay? So we sort of, and now you have to begin to think to yourself, given that you know this is the reality. And Carol, I wanted to say one other thing. When you asked, it just made me think of another thing, which is I'm always reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, Jesus coming into the world is much more like the French resistance going into Germany uh, than anything else. He, ca- he comes to win the day surreptitiously. You have to, we always have to remember that this world is demonic and it belongs to, it, it belongs to the forces of evil. I mean, part of the reason we have so much trouble is this is it's an evil world. And frankly, you know, it gets all, all over us and it sticks to us. I, I think one of the things I've learned over the course of, you know, being a pastor and time here is how um, I used to have much more um, uh, sadness and anxiety about Christians uh, going bad than I, than I probably do now. And I think that's just because I've come to a more a rich understanding of the pervasiveness of evil and how strong evil is and how difficult it is, frankly, for people to live their whole life uh, sort of untouched. Uh, and then part of, see, being a community is, well, see, this is, this is going to fill the gap. We, we have to figure out this morning how to fill the gap. So part of being a community is what? 
How do you move from one side to the other? What is it that would, what is it, how does Mother Teresa sort of carry on with, I mean, the worst of the worst, the poorest of the poor. I don't mean worst in terms of persons, but I mean the worst circumstances. You know, the places where they, they went to the, they, they tried to figure out where the worst circumstances were, and that's the people they went to. How do you do that even in the midst of spiritual darkness? How do you all, how do you be Israel in Egypt when you see five generations or six generations of people disappear before your eyes? How do you be community when people, when you disappoint each other and we disappoint you? How do you do that? And how, in fact, you know, part of your testimony is how do you get to the other side? You know, how do you, how do you get to Because people do get to the other side, right? And, okay, and, the, and the people we, we know who get to the other side or who, in fact, can live kind of from the other side are the people we regularly identify as the strongest Christians. How does that work? Any ideas? Yes, please. I think, I think one of the challenges we face is, as a community is that when you think about 430 years, we're such a media gratification, the media gratification in our perspective kind of works against us in that sense because it's like going to the doctor and getting an antibiotic to clear up that you know, you have 24 hours and you got it right. instead of letting it be That is not the obvious answer. Thank you very much. Now, um, now there's so much stuff going on here. Kind of hard to gather it all up. Um, look on. Open your. Open up to. Uh, One fifty-six. I got. Need to find my place here. I, I, I. You know. I have these. All these places marked. What we could be talking about. Um, hey, did you? Uh, can you believe? Can you believe that R.S. Thomas made it in here? I didn't know this was in it. You know who this guy is? This is the poet. This is the guy. This is the Cain thing that we read, and this is um, this is the guy. So I, I was, you know, and I had actually read this poem for a margin comment. This this way this way of the negative, the via negativa. I had read this poem, and I thought I, I can't put that in as a margin comment. That'll be too harsh. And then, you know, there it is. You know, and this is, it is very interesting that he was, you know, he was a Welsh poet and, and Wales has been, was horribly dependent on mining and, uh, you know, for now decades it has been horribly poor. Uh, unemployment in Welsh towns can go 60, 70, 80 percent easily. And if you travel through Wales, it's, 
it can be a harsh place on the sea. Um, but this fantastic, uh, but I, I thought, you know, there's so many ways this can be misunderstood. But on 156, you have the poem there by Thomas. The reason, I, for you who weren't here, I mean, we, you know, sort of, you know, it's an exercise in how much you don't know. I bumped into this guy. Actually, a friend bumped into it, and he said, have you heard of this guy? And I said, haven't. And there was an article in The Economist that said this guy was the greatest Christian poet of the 20th century. And then you're sort of embarrassed to, you know, not ever even heard his name, and then I was given a poem and given a book and given another book, and this guy is, uh, he was a pastor his whole life in, a, in very difficult circumstances, and he was brilliant, you know. So there he is. But listen, try this now. These witnesses to the, this is 156 underneath the poem, these witnesses to the experience of God's absence in the country of salvation. Okay, and so that sort of puts it in, that's Carol's question. How can he be absent from the country of salvation? There's an answer there, but we need to kind of come back to that. How can he be absent from the country are enormously important. They are rarely celebrated, whether in or out of church. This is not an area of life that most of us take kindly to. In fact, we normally see this as a weakness in people, which may be dead wrong. Okay? And not infrequently suppressed, which means, frankly, you know, and it's, I think it's particularly true in Wheaton. We, we have an idea. I mean, walking down the street in Wheaton, you have an idea what Christians should look like. It has very much often to do with bright, shiny faces, short hair, and support for the war in Iraq. You know, uh, <laughs> it's a very strange place to live in that way. I mean, it really is. I mean, you just is sort of, you know, there's one sort of kind of Christian, and that's the kind you should be. All right, well. But it wouldn't be that. No, no. Uh, or unhappy. Or have less than two Volvos. Right. Or, and their dog obeys. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes. Always. Always. <clears throat> but given our consumerist tendencies to shop for a god or a goddess, and if this is not us, I don't know what it is. We used to fill in the blank. This is Da Vinci Code. This is Buddhist meditation. This is I'm tired of church. This is don't you know there are lots of other gods? This is don't you know there are other ways to read scriptures? Given our consumerist tendency to shop for a god or goddess who will cater to our appetites for coziness and good feelings. This is every seminar you can buy this weekend about making, you know, this is Joel Wolstein. This is what it is. This is it, you know. They are necessary. Necessary to keep us alert and attentive to the mystery of God whose ways are past finding out. Now, here's the thing. If his ways are past finding out, Stop trying to find them out. Stop wasting your time. Okay, now the, so that means something in the gap. <laughs> well, it, it, it's in the doing, but the question is, what's the doing? Okay, Because this is, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I will do what I will do, or I will get it done. This is a verb. This verbal name for, Jesus, for, for the Lord. I, I am who I am, or I will. It, it can be translated. It, it's ambiguous how, how, how it can be translated. That gives it a bunch of possibilities. I am who I am. I will. Be, so that's the present. I will be who I will be. That's the future. I will do what I will do. That's the present into the future. I will get it done, which means I'll wrap history up in a big bow and I'll get it, I'll get it back to what it was always meant to be. I'll return you to Eden. All of that is buried in here, which means that God is all about the doing. You know, what's the Lord doing? So partly the gap is about the doing, but it's not your doing. That's what Linda was going before that was sort of helpful. So it's about the doing, and then one would tend the doing, but it would be the Lord who's doing the doing. So here, necessary to keep us alert and attentive to the mystery of God, whose ways are past finding out. If they're past finding out, stop trying to know the mind of God. Know what he tells you and embrace the rest uh, as mystery. Necessary to prevent us from reducing God Almighty to God at my beck and call. Necessary to place disciplined constraints on our collective, especially North American spiritual sweet tooth. What struck me here is, I thought, uh, you know, who wrote that? So I went and looked at the footnote. Did you look? Who wrote that? You don't have to look. Who is it? St. John of the Cross. Is it, uh, let's see, so what century is this? You know, he writes, this is 156. I'm thinking, where did he steal that phrase? And, of course, um, St. John of the Cross is 15th century, I think. I think it's 1400s or 1500s. 
So basically, 500 years ago, and St. John of the Cross is actually one who wrote quite a lot about spiritual darkness and the absence of God. Um, St. Teresa is his female counterpart who wrote similarly from a female perspective. Um, and St. John, you know, of the cross. I mean, here, here they are 500 years ago saying exactly the thing that troubles us. Necessary to enlarge our readiness for salvation beyond our carefully fenced in and devoutly tended backyard spirituality gardens. So if you thought that you were coming here so that everything would sort of be neat and clean and pretty, you're kind of all mixed up. Because if Christ really plays in 10,000 places, if he really plays in the world, if he really, really is redeeming all of this back to Eden, and if the world is just a mess, if it in fact is true that the end of Christ's life on earth is crucifixion, the, you know, uh, an innocent man condemned to death. You know, if it is anti-justice and if it is anti-life and it is anti-light, then why would you expect who follow him, why would you expect that your lives would be easy and bright and light? You would expect that because he talked all about I am the way, the truth, and the light, but he also talked about some time in between until that comes again. So Eden is way over here and you're still way over here, and you have the possibility for this in the interim, but you only have that if you tend this. And now we're just sort of back to the same old thing of saying, read your text and come to the Eucharist. And part of the answer is, I, and now I want to go all the way back to your question, which was so helpful. It, had Israel, had Israel done what they were given to do for 430 years, one might ask whether or not the darkness would have been so deep. Okay? Now, partly you know that they didn't do what they were told to do because when the Lord draws them out through the Red Sea and brings them um, just on the far side, and then it gets a little cold and they get a little hungry and a little tired and they start to complain, then your favorite verse of the Bible, which is, the Lord supplied enough quail until it what? Until it came out... That's right, until it came out their noses. He gave them so much food <laughs> that they sort of puked it up out their nose. That's what the text says, right? And a lot of them died. Yeah, from that. And then he sends the snakes and all this. And remember the great thing? Back to Egypt, where we had fish and we had cucumbers and life was good. Do you remember this? I mean, this is good. You just can't. Or, or, or Moses, uh, you know, runs up the mountain. to The Lord's called me up, and I'll, I'll be back in just a second with the details. And while he's gone, they, well, he must have died up there. He's been gone more than a couple of days. He must be dead. You know what would be good? We need a God. If that isn't the God, we'll have to get, then they get the golden calf. Why does it a golden calf? Because that's the kind of calf, that, that's the kind of God they had in Egypt, you see. So we're so given to the notion that we have to find some other substitute because it's not working, you see. And what does working look like? It looks like all you bright and shiny, posh people who can't admit that you ever yelled at your husbands and that your kids might ever disobey. And frankly, you know, who wants to be around people who lose jobs occasionally or get sick or frankly struggle with depression, alcoholism, drug abuse, or don't always get along with their parents or their in-laws, right? Because after all, we're Christians and then that would never happen to any of us, right? Do you see how warped that is? I mean, we have this image of this do-it-yourself kind of Christianity where Christianity is defined in anything but Christian terms. I mean, part of this is we just, we just don't know Jesus very well. I mean, we just don't know Jesus very well. He's homeless, you know. He's impoverished. He lived with the stigma of being illegitimate. He didn't have power, you know. Nobody listens to him. He loses more people than he gets. And he ends up getting killed for something he didn't do. Yes, please. Thank you very much. I think that at the end, I don't know how far you read, but um, I was very, this page, 160, this bit on exorcism, which intrigued me, I just, I, I'm, which is a great answer. Mm. See this, do you see this bit, 160? Did you get this far? Did you read this? Yeah? You were supposed to stop there? Okay, good. Did you read it, though, or did you stop before it? Did you read it? No, you didn't read it? All right, slowly and prayerfully, then.
Okay. A major difficulty in, difficulty in embracing history as the field of salvation. Okay, so you've, you've bought into the notion that there is salvation history and that Christ is at play. A major difficulty to embracing that, that Christ is at play, because frankly, some days you don't see it. It's too dark. A major difficulty in embracing history as the field for salvation, some find it insurmountable. Your father your teenage kid, you know, your sick next-door neighbor, the person who loses a child, why did God do this to me, right? Is the sheer mass of relentless and assertive counter-evidence. The loudest and most conspicuous players on the field of history are playing quite a different game than Christ is. That is the answer. Long ago, far away, I said to you, you know, 10 years ago, everybody plays a different game. And you live with the ills of the game that you play. So everybody tries to redefine the game. Most people, and certainly those who get the most attention, and their names in the history books, if that's what you want, being a Christian is not really a great way to do it, are playing other games by different rules. Here you go. War games, self games, money games, board games, baseball games, hunting and fishing games, card and roulette games, church games, sex games, games ranging from lethal to trivial, Sin and death games. If the world works by sin and death, then the way you get ahead in the world is by sin and death. It's not that hard to figure out, right? If the world is given to sin and death, you need to play the game. You know? You just lie a little bit. You just cheat a little bit. You know? You just neglect people a little bit. Many, if not all, of these games are associated with outright claims or implicit assumptions that the games, now here it is, will lift the lives of those who play them out of the ordinary, out of the ordinary darkness, out of the ordinary boredom, out of the ordinary lack of success, to something more interesting, more exciting. Isn't that always the catch? Why do people do what they do? For something more interesting, more pleasurable, more exciting, more about them, more self-centered, as if there was no God, as if there was no greater perfect pur- purpose, as if there was no great divine, more meaningful. Banish boredom, invite excellence, offer company with the elite, establish power. Would you like to be more popular? Would you like to be more beautiful? I heard last night on the news that 12 people have died from Botox injection so far. Then I thought to myself, if you really know your Botox was going to kill you, would you have the injection? And then I thought, yes. No. You know, some people react to it. It paralyzes their breathing muscles, and they just stop. Boop. Because that's what it does. That's how it works, right? It relaxes the nerves, relaxes the impulse. So it just relaxes some people, right? It's like the sleepy shot you give your dog when things go bad. So, okay. It's not difficult to detect at least a hint of transcendence in all this, to pick up muted God voices. See, it's not as if people say it's all about you. Hardly anybody says it's all about you. It's nice to run into a raw humanist once in a while who says it's all about you and there's nothing but you, so live your life in this particular way and when you die, that's the end of it. Most people don't say that. Most people will say, there's really some other God. And you could be a little God too, Da Vinci Code, yeah? You could be a little God too. To pick up muted God voices and God claims, advertising their wares, pretending... To help, save, entertain, improve, and power. All you need is a golden calf. You know the ten plagues, you know, in Egypt. You know the ten plagues. Whoa! I thought it was an appendicitis. It was only a call from the nursery. That was weird. <coughs> yes. You know that the ten plagues, made each one made fun of a different Egyptian god, right? They, each one of the plagues was a different... You worship frogs? We'll give you all the frogs you want. Right? This is true. This is true. Each of, the, each of the ten plagues is ultimately, and then the old, do you remember what the last plague was? What was the last plague? Killing the firstborn. Why is the firstborn killed? And what, the one who inherits what? The Pharaoh was divine. He was a god. He becomes a god. You become Pharaoh, you become a god. So the ultimate, the ultimate slap at that is to kill. If you say you're a god, then you can't die by definition. So the Lord kills him and the firstborn of everything else all around, right? 
So each, each of the plagues was a, was a different guy. You know how, you, next time you see something on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or something where they're showing, just look for, look for all the signs. Look for the, the, read the ten plagues and then look at the signs. You'll see them represented in, uh, you like beetles? You can have all the beetles you want, right? You worship the Nile, guess what? We'll turn it to blood. Yeah, see? I mean, the Nile was worshipped, why? Source of life. Flooded in the spring, watered everything down, receded, everything grew up. You could eat again. Why wouldn't you worship that? It brings life. Mm. Right? Even if the word is not used, and it seldom is, some variation or other on salvation is suggested. There you go. It's a false definition of salvation. So, I mean, here's the thing. How do you get out of these things? Have you ever known a really good drug pusher? You're probably too old. Our, your kids will know better, better, better. They'll know better dealers than you will. So, but isn't, isn't that always the problem? You're bored, you're tired, you're evil, you're not sharp, you're dark, you're unloved, you're alone, and I have something that would fix all of that. Yeah? Yes. It's a form of salvation, but it's actually not salvation because people are destroyed by it. That we'll be rescued from a condition in which we feel stuck. Anything ranging from boredom to misery and have a better life. Are you observing in all this about how it's all about you? I mean, for 25 lines about your darkness, it's all about your darkness. There's not one reference to other people and there's not one reference to God. And the most basic thing you ever learn from the catechism is love God and serve your neighbor. So you, but you, you see how seductive this is? Because we wake up in the morning, we ask ourselves how I feel, we look at our day and we wonder if we're going to like it. We look at the people around us and we primarily think about how they treat us rather than about how we treat them. You know, we regularly don't sort of keep our devotional life going. We regularly don't tend the Eucharist. We regularly don't listen and obey. We regularly just think about your life. It's the great sin, as Luther said, is to be curved in on yourself. The original sin is to be curved in on yourself, to think only about yourself. And that's why the catechism says, in the morning when you wake up, make the sign of the cross, remember somebody died, and say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, remember you're baptized, and then say the creed, that's the Lord who saved you, and the Ten Commandments, as a gift, this is how I'll live, and then go about your day. Because it breaks you out of only thinking about yourself. In the long run, the offers don't amount to much, and certainly not to anything that would qualify as salvation. Christian spirituality makes the bold claim that there is only one game on the field of history, and that is salvation. That is the most debilitating thing which over the last 300 years or 400 years has been eliminated from the way that we think about the world, especially um, in uh, higher education, especially in universities. This is what the Enlightenment was all about. Don't you know that there are other games besides the church? In Luther's time, coming into Luther's time, theology was the queen of the sciences. By the, by the 1700s, the, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, all of that was about you don't need the church, there's another game. There is reason, there is mysticism, there, is, there are other nations, there are other peoples, there are other gods. Don't you know that? And so now we live in this great postmodern pluralistic society. And scripture is a great rejection of that in this sense. To say that there is one game above all other games. Or as the church says, there is one name above all other names at which every knee should bow. It is the particularity of Jesus Christ and the particularity of his cross which is, the ulti- which is ultimately rejected by the world. To say that there is one God above all other gods is to be seen as at best pedantic and at worst to be some sort of a zealot. Right? But there it is. Christian spirituality makes the bold claim there's only one game on the field of history, that's salvation. Everything that happens, everything that men and women do, happens on this playing field, on and over which God is sovereign, the field in which Christ plays in 10,000 places. But it takes some doing for us to see that. It takes some doing for Israel to see that. 
but see it they did, and here's how it came about. Now, here's my question. Um, Heaven, there's a, there's a way to interpret my rant this morning as um, let's go out and break some heads, right? I mean, sort of what's your reaction to this, you know? <laughs> well, but I mean, not so physical, but just there's the, this can often lead to, sorry? Yes, I was trying to say, I was trying to, yes, I was trying to find a non-theological way to say it. This can often, this can often, so you sort of say, okay, here it is. This is where, this is what the world looks like, and this is where Eden lies, and this is just short of Eden, so tending all these things. So why in the world doesn't everybody tend it? Right. Right. So then the question is, now what do you do? Because you're going to go out and bump into real people, like your real family, who are in some cases really struggling or really depressed. So the question is, see, this is, and this then becomes the whole issue of, of pastoral care and then sort of spiritual care of the community. It's very easy to sort of get this up on the board, to read this, and then become indignant. And then as soon as people become indignant, indignant the first thing they do is start shouting at each other. Right? That sounds a bit soft. Just loving people is going to be the answer. Yes. Yes. Wait, <laughs> roll the tape back, please. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's great. We're all comfortable with each other. <laughs> it's, it's the I was, um, I, 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 led, I attempted to lead you astray and you wouldn't be led, so good for you, good for you. Um, Gainig is teaching uh, at River Forest, he's teaching the apologetics course, which everybody expects then he'll bring his Josh McDowell Bible in and beat people <laughs> over the head with it. And so he's, he said, I'll, I'll probably never be asked back, but he's, he's, gonna, he, he's having one, one try at it. The basic theme of the course is this. Well, they, 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 they have to make money, too, uh, you know. So, um, but so they have this course, and they said, they called and said, what I teach it? I said, I, I couldn't possibly, but I said, I know somebody who might. So Gaining teaches this course, and now here's, here's what he's basically saying. In a sentence, he's saying, forget all the arguments, live like a Christian, and people will come to Christ. How about that? Now, at the end of that, they're either going to fire him and withhold his check, or they'll ask him to teach it twice next term. <laughs> and then that'll be sort of a judgment on the department, you know. But I, I, you're exactly right, which is, here's the thing. Jesus is in the gap. Jesus is in the bush. Jesus is in the gap. This is Jesus here. So how does Jesus deal with people who are like this? Not just you, because you're like this. You're like this some days. And if you haven't, God bless you. If this never happened to you, you're the rare, odd person in the church, but God bless you. And if you haven't ever had it, don't seek it. And maybe it'll miss you, you know. Maybe Satan will forget your address. I mean, that's, if that happens to you, God bless you, you know. But it's probably not going to. Okay, so how do you move from this to this? This is community, and then beyond this is Eden. 
right? So how do you move all the way through? But this is death, but this is Eden. And the answer is it's God in the bush, it's Jesus in the bush, and Jesus is doing what he does. And what he does is basically love your neighbors and do good to, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. You just keep doing it. And th- see, this is why, you know, forever and ever I've been, I've, and, and I don't know if you can hear this in the gospel, but this is all the talk about discipline and authority obedience are all gospel words because had Israel for those 430 years just done what they were given to do, done their sacrifices, and said their prayers, it wasn't as if they were left with nothing. They had their father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They'd heard it all, you see. So the answer is that when you're in the darkness, the, the temptation is always to stop doing what you're doing. You know, once I said to you when I taught a whole thing on this upstairs about four years ago, when you're, the answer when you're in darkness is to flee into the darkness. Let's not, let's not get too comfortable in the group today, okay? Let's not get too comfortable in the group. I don't know if we want to be. Yeah, exactly right. You've got to love people because they're so hard to like. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Because I said I would. That's right. No, that's right. You love, why do you love your wife? Because you, you said you would. Right. You, you can't, like, you're going to love me because, that, because that's what you're to do. The Lord loves Israel because he chose them. He chose Israel. He married Israel. He stands by Israel. Why do you think all those stories, three or four times in the Old Testament, they're stories about Israel, and you can't say it any other way. Israel is a whore, and God is a faithful husband. Why do you think those stories are in the Bible? That's our story. That's this. It's just another way to say this. So, so the, you can't do anything but encourage them. But how do you encourage them? You bring them to the Eucharist. Yeah. You can't, I don't, oh gosh. Now, see, I'm getting older and I can't remember stuff. What's the name of the, the book about the great despair in the prison camps written by the Jewish guy who then became the great son? No, no, no. No, it's not night. It is, um, it's better than that. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Yes. Thank you. Victor Frankel. What's the name of the book? I know. Isn't that Yes, thank you. My search for meaning. Where he talks about how they would watch. They would watch for people who would show signs of despair, like they would stop eating, right? Or stop moving. Or they would sit alone. And what they would do is they'd actually watch and they would count off and they'd have somebody go sit with somebody. You see the guy where they go sit with him. And then they would each take part of their bread and they would give it to the person who had stopped eating. It's just fa- they refuse to let people be alone or in love. They just refuse. That's what you do. See, our impulse is always to stop because we have the sense of it's not working. We've been here 430 years. It's not working. And the answer is it's not working from your perspective. But from God's perspective who said, do this. I'm a doer and you do it too. You just keep doing it. And here's the other thing. You'll look back on your life in the times when you didn't do it, and you'll have great sadness over the time you wasted wondering whether or not it was true. And that's the hardest thing. And maybe that only comes with age, but you will, you will look back over the times, not just that you were dark, but that you were undoing, and you will say, you know, it's like when people stop coming to church for three or four years. When, you know, when they come back, you know, you love me, take them. But there's always this, kids, you know, in high school, a great example. They might take it two or three years off because they're in high school and that's what you do. And part of the thing is, it's not that you stop loving them, but think of all the good the Lord could have done through them in those two or three years. On the other hand, you don't penalize them for that. You just say, well, well, we'll see what the Lord's got going next, you know. Our, our, our impulse is to be harsh with people. We, we need not be harsh with people. They've got all the harsh they need over here. This is the law. It's a little like funerals. You don't have to say too much about people being dead. There's a body in front of them. Everybody knows there's death. There's pain. Right? Okay, round the room, and then we'll be done. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, there's a, there's a difference <coughs> between those who despair and depression and spiritual despair. Yes. Um, 
Yes. And all of a sudden, you are you are spending, you know, a, a very productive, multitasking person can all of a sudden be spending their days willing themselves to take their next breath. Right. And um, I found that with with spiritual despair, for me, the equivalent of willing to take the next breath is um, just repeating things in my mind that I know are true. Right. Which invoke the scripture. Right. But it's the basic stuff you learned when you're five. Right. Um, Because you just can't really, you know, it's like the death march and you're forcing yourself to do it. But eventually it becomes easier and you can move on (coughs) to the meat and potatoes. But you go go to the milk and honey of Jesus loves me. This I know. Right. The Bible tells me so. Right. And you say that over and over, or, you know, for God so loved the world, or, you know, whatever he's for me, he's not against me. And uh, um, and hopefully there there is someone pulling you back into community. But for those of us who are programmed to get up on a Sunday morning and we do it anyway because we're just part of a family, uh, I, you know, Kirby's what, something that you went through, you, you know, you might never notice if you might never notice um, someone in our congregation because they're still going to show up because that's what their family does and whatever. But um, I think that just being in church and uh, like ha- hearing others speak around you is a great comfort because when you can't, even when you wonder whether you believe what you're saying, uh, if the despair gets so dark, then. It's a, it's a great comfort to hear all the other voices. That's right. Know. And um, I've found that uh, that column over there, for me, has changed in character quite drastically since I became Lutheran because my expectations of what I, what was on my plate to accomplish with my relationship with God is completely different. And a lot of the um, the pressure to have a great relationship with the Lord is gone because it's not it's not about what I do, which makes doing spiritual disciplines so much easier because there's no baggage involved about me checking off. It's like my to-do list. It's more. This is who I am, and I just want to thank the Lord for saving me. So you just do it without it being on your checklist of how to get from A to B. But when you're in the despair column, you know, baby steps (laughs) for doing. Well, the simplest prayer. When they, you know, when people pray, the, the traditions that were, were pray without ceasing, and you begin by saying uh, the prayer ten thousand times a day until it, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a um, the Pilgrim's Way, this book, the Pilgrim's Way, where you begin by saying ten thousand times a day, and you count with beads, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Frankly, the, the few times I thought I was dying um, or in greatest despair, that's what comes. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy, and it's enough. Right, yeah. Our van going 70 miles an hour. And uh, I was, I must have been yelling out, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Jesus Christ, have mercy. Right. My kids to this day remind, remember that day in the car, Mom? They had no idea that right. we were ready to get completely obliterated. Right. And th- remember that day when we were like yelling, Jesus Christ, have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> it just cracks me up because I didn't even realize that that is what I'm yelling. But right. I'm glad my kids heard that because right. they know. That's right. In my moment of distress, that's, that's where I'm That's going. right. That's right. I was thinking about this woman who came to our church at a time that she was going through difficulty, and she said she's so thankful that people saw that in her and loved her, even though they hardly knew her, to yet 
Association at the time where she said, quite frankly, no one would really have wanted to be around him. <laughs> uh, you know, people can go through that for all kinds of reasons, maybe people just went under pressure or whatever, but she happened to be in somewhat of a dark time, dark period. And she said, <coughs> for a long time, people hung in there with her. And she gradually sort of pulled out of it, and she's so thankful for that. But she said, you could easily flee that. Well, the reason you'd flee is that you miss that it's about the Lord's doing. Now, all that you said was brilliant because it was all about what the Lord does to you. And then all, all that you said about your family pulling you along and what responses, that's all the Lord doing it to you. Yeah. Well, it's the Lord, you know, sort of giving you stuff. Yeah, start talking about the Lord and then you're going to be okay. Beth, did you have something you wanted to go? And then Donna, too, did you have something you all wanted to say? That's right. what you do, like Jesus, you expect nothing in return. I mean, you just expect nothing. So if you said, if I said to you, Beth, why are you, why are you coming up alongside somebody to help them? Your answer would be, because Jesus asked me to do that. It wouldn't be because I want to see a response or I want to, I mean, we sort of need to move. Yeah, we like to see people get fixed and we'd like to see people get better. But in reality, and we don't want to hurt people, but in reality, why do we do what we do? Because Jesus asked me to do it. Christianity is, is strikingly simple. It's not complex. It's hard to execute, but it's really strikingly simple. You do what you do because Jesus said, he said to feed poor people, so you feed poor people. He said to be generous, so you're generous. And he said to live in hope because he gives hope, right? Yes, exactly right. But that's partly, yes, right. Right. But see, that's partly why you need each other. That's why people, the scriptures talk about people at different levels of maturity and stuff. You sort of need each other because if you're going to be the group of people that are going to go out and do that, there's very little return. In work, and just to be real honest, this notion of, of the glorified poor, the glorified depressed, or the glorified underclass, that's all nonsense. If you've ever really worked with poor people, it's extraordinarily difficult. They're, they have all the troubles you have, and they're poor. You know, They have all the troubles you have, and they don't have a place to live. They have all the trouble you have, and they don't have medical insurance. I mean, it's, there's nothing sort of you know, remarkably wonderful about working with the poor, except that you're working with the poor. And because you're doing that because Jesus asked you to do it, right? See, that's how you keep, you keep Jesus in front of the verb. He, he asks you to do it, therefore you do it. It's actually, you're, you're saying the same thing that Gigi said in just a very different way for a different circumstance, which is what you're supposed to do. Anybody else? Exactly. 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 Right. And that's what makes her a saint because she did it for 50 years. She had eight bright weeks in 50 years. That's what makes her a saint. Exactly. Because that was what the Lord bid her to do. And she never saw the payoff and she never saw brightness and she didn't even feel good about it. And yet she did it, you see. That's her own 430 years. Which is the Lord, Lord, yeah, right, right, exactly. Oh, she was always good. You know, she had that kind of finger that kind of, she had that (laughs) nun finger thing going, you know, kind of just that little curve, like, you know, but, you know, yeah, it was really quite, all right, well, we should probably go. Thanks, kept you a little longer. So I don't know, um, 160, you know, read 10 or 15 pages, okay? I don't even know where the break is. I haven't looked ahead, but just, just read the next logical section, 10 or 15 pages. It's better to, you know, read a few pages and actually read it and talk it through than to try to read too much. We're not going anywhere. I mean, we would do what we do. Yeah, I mean, we'll just do. We'll just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we do what we want, okay?
All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.